This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. From the naked dawn of man to the magnificence of the Bible. The Lord Jehovah has given unto you these 15, 10, 10 commandments. From the glory that was Rome. To the French Revolution with its squalor and its splendor. Mel Brooks, History of the World, Part 1. Ten million years in the making. Our history is mostly spoken about in terms of great leaders or or decisive wars or or migrations of of people around the world or a general making a a bad decision on the battlefield and one empire is, is taken over by another. All hail Caesar, emperor of Rome, monarch of the Roman Empire, ruler of the world. But I think what we miss out when we look at only those factors is the sort of layer of reality beneath all of that. How the ground beneath our feet has played this defining role in directing our story, directing the the history of of humanity. One of the first weapons man invented was the spear. In ancient times, man was ignorant as to the cause and nature of death. So, death was greeted with a certain degree of awe. So everything from our own evolution as a species and what crafted us as an exquisitely intelligent species of ape through how we came to inherit and migrate around the entire world and where we founded our first civilizations and developed agriculture and through thousands of years of, of history through to, to the modern day of, of current affairs and politics. There's the signature of planet Earth underlying all of, all of those chapters of our history. Politics, 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 politics. Yes, the Roman Senate. The Roman Senate is the best legislature that money can buy. Corruption starts in the streets with the little peddlers. They bribe an assemblyman. The assemblyman bribes a councilman. The councilman bribes a senator. And the senator, it goes all the way up to the emperor. Shit. Hello and welcome to Science-ish, I'm Rick Edwards, joined as ever by Dr Michael Brooks. Hello! And it's your turn, what are we going to be looking at? We are doing History of the World Part 1. Mel Brooks? Yeah, do you know it? Yeah, I do. I mean, I haven't seen it in, I'm going to say... Decades? 
yes, I'm going to say 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't, uh, to be honest, I don't really remember it. No, so I, I saw it as a child again. Yeah. And um, it's sort oh, so of... 50 years ago, wow. <laughs> That's before it came out. Before it came yeah. out, yeah. It's, I mean, it's funny. Uh, so I, I rewatched some clips on YouTube. I didn't go back and rewatch the whole thing. But it's that sort of thing. But, but it doesn't matter because it's not like a one narrative thing anyway. No, it's just no. literally a sketch after sketch after sketch. Yeah. Click to the next one and the next one and the next one. I, I probably watched most of the film, to be honest. And uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's basically a load of sketches based on historical situations. I mean, Mel Brooks is, he's excellent. He's yeah. A funny man. Yeah, it is funny. Um, so. This feels a little bit like it might be history-ish again. Well, <laughs> Every now and again yeah, we yeah. dip our toe into yeah. history, don't we? It's, it's actually more geography-ish, if, if I'm honest. But in a good way. You can talk about science as a broad thing, can't broad you? Broad church. A broad church, and actually there's a lot of science in geology. And, okay, yes. And geography. I'll give you that, I'll give you that slightly less. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what's our big question then? So our big question is going to be, how much does geography dictate history? <laughs> just, this is just humanities. Ish. <laughs> um, well, please tell me that we've tracked down a bona fide legend to smack this one out of the park. Well, of course we have. Uh, we've got Lewis Dartnell. So, oh, I like him. Astrobiologist, professor of science communication at the University of Westminster. He has just written a book that is unbelievably ideal. Um, so this you, is you were messaging me about this book yeah, this was, weekend. Yeah, in fact, yeah, yeah, yeah. how much you were loving it. Yeah, it's the kind of book where you're reading it, and all the time you're reading it, you're smiling, and you're like, oh. Tell me another thing. Tell me another oh, thing. Like, um, did you read Science-ish, The Peculiar Science Behind the Movies? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, I did. I had yeah. that with that. Yeah. Really, yeah. really still available. Yeah. Um, presumably yeah. for about 79 pence on Amazon. <laughs> I'd be surprised if you get charged that much. <laughs> yeah, just take it off the hands, please. <laughs> anyway, so Lewis's book is called Origins, How the Earth Made Us. And it's, okay. it's really, really fascinating history of how the geography the geology all the kind of factors have basically shaped human civilization I'm, i've got to say i was concerned when you said um, how much does geography dictate history but already i'm intrigued you will be i mean honestly, honestly what do, what i am ask? just pumped about this you are aren't you yeah yeah a little grin yeah. on your face you little cutie pie um so what did we ask lewis first so uh, first of all we asked him to take us right back to how our species first emerged we as a species were a member of the, of the hominin family. So the hominins are this entire branching tree of human-like animals, human-like apes. And the big question is, why did we evolve the way we did in East Africa? What turned us from tree-swinging primates into bipedal, tool-using, intelligent, chatty, naked apes that, that we are today, that, that our species, that Homo sapiens, became. And primarily what was driving that overall process was the drying out of East Africa, where we were living five, six million years ago, that this landscape that was more like a jungle book transformed into something a lot more like the Lion King, that the forest retreated and we were forced out into the savannah. And this seems to come down to a quirky combination of planetary forces in East Africa. There was a lot of active plate tectonics going on in the area. 
as a great big magma plume was pushing up beneath the African continent and swelling up the crust like this kind of huge planetary zit so that when the skin of the earth, the crust, split, it ripped open this great rift valley. Humanity was born and evolved on the valley floor of this great rift. And what was special about the landscape of this rift valley is that it's got high mountainous ridges running along either side of of a low, hot, dry valley floor. So that any rain that does fall runs down into lakes on the floor. The lakes are very sensitive to even tiny fluctuations in the local climate. And what drives a lot of these climate fluctuations are a set of cosmic cycles, the the so-called Milankovitch cycles, which where there's tiny little wobbles in Earth's axis of spin or our orbit around the sun. And so those tiny fluctuations in in the climate around the equator, driven by those cosmic cycles, interact with the landscape of the Rift Valley in East Africa and make it a very unstable environment. It's constantly fluctuating between wet and dry. These lakes on the valley floor are flickering in and out of existence, like a loose light bulb. And it's that very unstable, constantly changing environment that drove us to become intelligent, that we couldn't just adapt to one particular environment, we had to be adaptable and versatile, and that drove huge increases in our brain size. Even in most primitive man, the need to create was part of his nature. And here, in a cave somewhere in the North American continent, about two million years ago, the first artist was born. With the birth of the artist came the inevitable afterbirth, the critic. Okay, so we've we've evolved into our own species. We've branched off from the um, the stupid apes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a great thing from Richard Dawkins on Twitter I saw over the weekend, which was um, <laughs> he he's variable on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, he is. He is very dangerous. But he he suggested he said he basically wanted to suggest a new idea, which was that bipedalism came from showing off. So it's like certain animals, certain primates had the ability. Mm-hmm. It turned out to sort of stand upright for a bit. Sort of puff your chest out. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it was like everyone that looked at it and said, oh, that's quite cool. That looks sick. Yeah. <laughs> and then people started copying it and then they got better and better at it and they could just stay, you know, stay on two feet. And he reckons that's how mm. bipedalism started. I quite like that. What are the alternative theories on that? Well, I mean, the only thing I've really heard about it is that it enables tool use. So if you can do it, you yeah, can start to use tools so you get some kind of feedback, positive feedback from that. But I quite like the idea it was just like showing off. But to some extent, the thing about the tool use is if you're on on all fours, yeah. you can use one hand still to use a tool, can't you? It's fine. I suppose so. But if you need you something can that's sit, got yeah, but two you can hands, sit down and make yeah, but like what? All right. You can squat, can't you? I mean yeah, you can, squat down, make make the I'm tool not with and my then knees, use it with but, one hand. No. Not with, no, no, Christ. You would have been absolute waste of space six million years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and now <laughs> um, anyway, anyway okay so uh, so we're not quite sure about bipedalism yeah. but maybe it was just a, a sort of um, peacock it interesting. Uh, is interesting um, also a good but, way of showing off your genitals really isn't it yeah again you would have been useless there 
get, get back down on all fours. <laughs> nothing to see. Nothing to see. Oh, it's cold, isn't it? Is it cold, guys? <laughs> um, so, listen. We've <laughs> six million years ago, roughly speaking. Yeah, that's that's contentious in itself, isn't it? That figure. Yeah, a little bit. Um, so between between five and seven uh, million <laughs> years ago, we've we've split off into our own uh, species, yeah. not Homo sapiens, obviously. At that point, we're spreading out from East Africa. We're kind of wandering around the globe as hunter gatherers. How does the Earth then shape what happens next? So, really interestingly, all of the earliest civilizations have a reason, a geological reason for why they appeared where they did. So, you've got something like the Harappan civilization in the Indus Valley, mm-hmm. which basically sits in this sort of trough along the foot of the Himalayas. And it turns out that it's just the most fertile soil because you've got these sort of tectonic plates that you know created the movement of which creates right. mountains and everything else, and and these movements just churn up the mineral-rich soil that makes it really fertile. And wherever oh. you look, you basically got all of early civilizations are springing up along tectonic along plate boundaries. Tectonic plate sort of junctions where, yeah, they're, where yeah. they're colliding. Yeah, because ah. this is where the fertile soil is, is brought up. I did not know that. That's well, good. Exactly. I mean, this is... That is good. Yeah, so um, basically you get these continental collisions and you get places where humans can settle down. So the Mayans, the Aztecs, Minoans, the Greeks, Etruscans, Romans, they're all sitting there right. where there's volcanic or, or tectonic activity. So, so in that case, though, so if we're saying that you have the most fertile soil at these um, plate tectonic junctions, yeah. and that's why agricultural civilizations are springing up there, that makes sense. Yeah. Why then does agricultural society become most dominant in Europe and Asia, which I think it does, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. So it it does. And um, the reason is basically that the way the Eurasian plates, you know, when all the continental plates move around, the Eurasian plate ended up running east to west. Mm -hmm. So Europe and Asia is basically this massive east to west thing that goes sort of, you know, most of the way around the world or halfway around the world kind of thing. And um, east to west means that any crops that sort of grow in one part of it and are suited to that. Actually, if you move along the same kind of latitude, you've got pretty much the same kinds of conditions. So you end up in a position where you've got a crop that can just spread along this, um, along see. this east-west thing, or, or from or from east to west, west to east, whatever. It can grow over the whole area. Whereas the North and South Americas, it's sort of running north-south. And north-south means you've just got this massive climatic range in terms of yeah. conditions that you're having to grow in or live in. So you just get this completely sort of different way of uh, of having to live. And so you can't spread anything around. So, so everything is sort of very much localised. In pockets, yeah. yeah. So it doesn't, doesn't really work in the same way. So it's brilliant being in Eurasia. And presumably, again, this... Um this advantage of being on on Eurasia because the the climate is relatively similar because it runs east west that applies to animals as well as plants. Yeah, so plants. It, it, this is an amazing thing. So I, I, this is something I learned from Lewis's book. I didn't know at all. But you've got two hundred thousand plant species in the world, mm-hmm. right? You've got a couple of thousand of those are suitable for human consumption, and then basically there's only a few hundred of those you can domesticate and cultivate, right? And it turns out that of the fifty six grasses that give you the like you know, cereal crops best seeds yeah. 32 grow wild in southwest asia and around the mediterranean 
Uh, six found in East Asia, four in Sub-Saharan Africa, five in Central America, four in North America. So, so it's like it's much better to be in Eurasia, basically. Yeah. And um, and so so they, those are the ones that will spread really nicely across Eurasia. And then when it comes to animals, basically we've just plundered the Americas. So amazingly, you have all the, these large animals that you can use for domestication. You can use skin, you can use milk, and, and obviously meat. Mm-hmm. And but you need them to have a kind of docile nature. And uh, yeah, so you can kill them. <laughs> so you can kill them. <laughs> so so Lewis has done this kind of research where it's like he says there's 148 species of large mammals around the world. They're heavier than 40 kilograms. All the good ones, like you get them in the Americas, and then in, they just migrated across the land bridge into Africa from Southern America yeah. or across the the land bridge in the north to Eurasia so and then they all died we... out in the Americas and we've got them all in Europe yeah unlucky guys <laughs> <laughs> um, so what uh, what kind of time period are we talking about that migration happening oh, across uh, those land bridges I mean that's a long time ago it's a long long like time like a long ago. long time yeah, ago yeah yeah the continents were joined which I think people sort of forget yeah because otherwise stuff wouldn't be able to have yeah. passed so basically what happens is the continents are drifting, as we know. Mm. And, you know, when you look at South America and Africa, you think, oh, they, they could fit together quite nicely. And of course, they, they kind of did. Yeah. So, and there so, was at some point, a long time ago, there was a, yeah. a bridge between them. So you get yeah. this sort of, um, this idea of, of things just being able to migrate mm. sort of between the two and then eventually being cut off. Uh, but it turns out that we've done really well in, in you know, Asia, Eurasia, and, uh, and the Americans have kind of lost out. Where did uh, Lewis take us next? So he took us to the early 15th century. My favourite. Yeah, uh, and uh, talking about the wind in our sails. Oh, God. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash ev9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. In more recent history, and in particular in the age of exploration, in the age of sail, European states first started exploring out into the Atlantic and then finding very long-distant trade routes across the oceans to India, discovering the Americas, and building these empires of the ocean across vast, vast areas of the planet. And what was behind all of that expansion and colonization and empire building, it basically all comes down to the patterns of winds on Earth's surface. And these are driven by the fundamental systems of circulation of air in Earth's atmosphere. The equator is warm, it gets lots of sunlight, so the air uh, warms up, it rises, and then as it rolls over through the upper atmosphere, through high altitudes, it descends back again to the Earth's surface at about 30 degrees north and south of the equator. And then to complete that circuit, the air has to move back across the surface 
towards the equator and air moving over the surface is what, what we call winds. So the winds around the equator are blowing in towards, in towards the middle, in towards the midriff of the Earth. But the Earth isn't static, it, it also turns. And so you get this Coriolis effect that deflects the winds to the side. So the trade winds, which always blow from the east towards the west, are created by this fundamental circulation pattern in the atmosphere called the Hadley cells. And you get a contrasting band of winds to the north and south of that, which are the westerlies, which, which blow in the opposite direction because of the feral cell in, in Earth's churning, circulating atmosphere. And so this whole process of exploration and then trade route building came down to these Europeans realising that if you want to get from A to B around the world, you just have to hop with your sailing ship between these different bands of reliable winds. You, you move from one conveyor belt to the other. You cross the Atlantic in one band of winds, sail a bit further north, and then you can return all the way back to where you came from because the winds are blowing the opposite direction for you. And this pattern of winds around our planet therefore defined the details of this age of exploration, defined where became useful points on the planet because that's where the wind takes you. You can only sail between particular places that the wind is blowing. So that defined where it became very strategic in these early stages of globalization, and therefore what built the modern world, that the shape of the world we live in today was to a large extent defined by where the winds happen to blow because of these patterns, these reliable patterns of circulation in the atmosphere. So obviously that kind of period, we're harnessing the power of the wind to, to move around, but then we've had kind of energy revolution. Did the Earth have any influence on that? Yeah, so, um, so obviously... When you're a basic civilization, you're harvesting, say, wood. You know, you're using wood and wood power that's in your cooking with wood and whatever else. And maybe wood doing... Wood powered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fire power. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, but there comes a point where you, you're just going to use up all the resources, really, you know, that, that are available to you. And then if you're the kind of civilization that discovers that you're sitting on beds of coal then you've got a whole new resource available to you. Yeah. So basically the geology of, of coal, you know, wood and plants, if you're harvesting them and using them for energy, you're, you're using sunshine, it's photosynthesis, yeah. that's, what, that's the energy that you're releasing. And uh, this uh, coal obviously comes from plants that have been um, buried and crushed and, and turned into, in, into coal seams. And then you've got what Lewis calls fossilized sunshine. So you've got these vast resources that have been laid down and you just dig them out and you burn them. And suddenly you've got, you know, the, the uh, resources, especially if you then use, um, you know, use charcoal, you can make coke from the coal so it burns even more efficiently. Uh, and then eventually, you know, as happened in Britain, you, you get the ability to, to turn all this energy into steam which can then power your you know, industrial revolution and, and take you even further. So, but the, you know, the key is having all of this geological resource, coal, which just makes an enormous difference to you being able to meet growing energy demands. And that's got to be pure luck, whether you happen to be sitting over a load yeah, of coal, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, yeah, it's just a lottery, isn't it? Because you, you didn't really settle in that area in no. order to, you know, because there was coal there. But if you happen to be settled on an area that where you, you've got coal, and especially if you've got the right kind of, you know, lime sediments and everything else, so you can build kilns and furnaces and start to smelt iron and do all this kind of stuff, you are laughing. Yeah, which is why all the people who live near potential fracking sites are so happy. Because they're <laughs> like, we have, honestly, 
What a touch. I know. I mean, Purely be, by chance. Yeah, yeah they must be so happy with that. <laughs> Just to discover you've got this massive amount of shale gas under yeah. your feet. It's perfect. Yeah, yeah. And all you've got to do... <laughs> um, now, I've got a nice big question for you here. Go on then. Why did the Industrial Revolution begin in Europe and not in the East, not in China? Well, it's contentious, but actually... There are cultural differences. So one of the cultural differences is that actually uh, the Chinese, the Confucian culture, um, is to honour the classics and honour the elder generation and not to question the wisdom that's passed down through the generations. So that's so one... less likely to innovate then. So they're less likely to innovate. Mm. And they're also less likely to kind of talk to each other, argue something through to the point where you get a kind of new opinion. But the other thing about the, the Eurasian states, or the European states in particular, is that they were small and all next to each other. And if you were a dissenter and you'd kind of, you know, you weren't going to accept the status quo and you weren't ex- going to accept the received wisdom, but you had another idea and you wanted to, to promote this idea. And, and you, know, you might get sort of banned from your own state or persecuted within your own state, but you can hop to the, the country next door and you might find things more receptive. So, so the fact that much you have harder to hop next door if you're in China because it's so yeah, big. Very much so. Hmm. Yeah. So okay. just kind of get these little differences that where where you know they can make a huge difference. And this is why it seems that you know we got enough progress to get kind of the Enlightenment science going on and the Industrial Revolution, that kind of sense of... And also, you know, the the Reformation, you know, the kind of getting away from the Catholic dominance, you know, because mm. people could just move around go to different places where they could be more accepted. So, so it's just more progressive and free-thinking, really. Hmm. Occupation. Stand-up philosopher. What? Stand-up philosopher. I coalesce the vapour of human experience into a viable and logical comprehension. Oh, a bullshit artist. <clears throat> Did you bullshit last week? No. Did you try to bullshit last week? Yes. Uh, And what about the modern day then? Is the Earth still continuing to influence the course of history? Uh, So this is a question that we asked Lewis, and he put us right into the cauldron of US politics. Ooh. We still feel this deep influence of the planet, even today, even in current affairs politics. It's, it's not just millions of years ago in our evolution or thousands of years of, of history. There is still this distinct imprint or signature of the Earth on things like political maps and the way that people choose to vote in elections. And a really nice example of this is if you look in the southern states of the US. And the southern states are overwhelmingly Republican. But if you look at it at a map, on, on a county level, so on a slightly finer resolution, amidst this sea of Republican red, there's a very distinct curve, an arc of Democrat voting counties. And if you peel away that uh, political map and look at the, the landscape and, and the geological map of the earth under your feet, we see that that arc of Democrat voting counties perfectly overlays a band of rocks on the surface which are about 75 million years old. voters, nearly 50 million, turn out to choose between the Democratic candidate, President Franklin D. Roosevelt, and the Republican candidate, Governor Thomas E. Dewey. During the Cretaceous period, the, the planet's climate was much, much warmer. 
back then. The sea levels were much higher, and the sea flooded right through the interior of North America. And it laid down this really thick, fertile seafloor mud, which became buried, compacted into mudstone, and then re-exposed by erosion millions of years ago. So they have this band of Cretaceous rock on the surface today, which breaks down to give you a really dark, fertile, rich soil. In the mid-1800s, when people were colonizing uh, North America and trying to find cash crops to grow to support themselves and sell for money back in Europe, they realized that cotton grows exceptionally well on that dark, rich soil. And in the mid-1800s, growing cotton, which is hard to, to harvest, is very quite picky, that unfortunately meant slave labor. So people were picked up in Africa against their will, taken across the Atlantic by using that band of winds that we were talking about earlier, dumped on the plantations and forced to work harvesting this cotton. Even today, hundreds of years later, after the civil war and the emancipation and, and the freedom of, of African-Americans, even today, one of the densest populations of African-Americans remains around that Cretaceous band of rocks. And they still unfortunately afflicted with socioeconomic problems of, of, of poverty. And so therefore, they tend to vote for Democrat ideals, of social reform and, and, and healthcare. Looking at the political map and that band of Democrat voting counties takes you back through hundreds of years of history of agricultural systems and the trends of our history right back to 75 million years ago when that particular band of rocks was being laid down during a quirky, warm period of our planet's history. Wow. So, amazingly, if you look at the town of Montgomery, Alabama, yeah. right, which is where Rosa Parks refused to surrender her seat on the bus back mm-hmm. in 1955 the start of the whole civil rights movement, mm-hmm. that's right in the middle of this band of ancient Cretaceous rocks. Really extraordinary it's, it's, stuff, it's isn't incredible. it? Yeah, yeah. Um, how far does um, geography and geology... I feel like this is mainly geology, by the way. Yeah, yeah, it's That's okay, how you could it? have sold it to me at the start. Yeah, I could have less, It does feel um, a bit like a geography lesson, but, you know... Yeah, but focusing mainly on geology. Yeah, okay. Um, but how, how much does geology explain more recent sort of military activity then? So uh, the classic example, and, and this isn't from Lewis's book, this is uh, something else, but, but it's Russia. So, so I sort of did a bit of digging into this, and suddenly I felt like I... Unintended? Under- <laughs> Not really, but... Yeah, yeah, could have been. I'll, I'll take that. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt this sort of strange understanding of Vladimir Putin. So Russia, Moscow in particular, is sort of indefensible in that the, the geology of the region is, is just completely exposed and flat to the West, completely. Mm-hmm. Like you can march into, into Russia, famously you can. So mm-hmm. the Poles have done it, the Swedes have done it, the Germans have obviously done it twice in, in both world wars. Mm-hmm. And there's sort of nothing to defend Russia at all. Right. So, so Moscow in particular is sort of very vulnerable, isn't it? Rivers, mountains, you know, there's just very little to stop an army apart from the vast distance. Mm-hmm. And so the Russian leaders, going all the way back to Ivan the Terrible, they've just taken the approach of like, well... Because we're quite indefensible here, we'd better just go out and attack and secure bits of the surrounding area that are defensible. 
So like Poland is a good bottleneck area. If you can secure Poland, then, you know, people can't march through onto Russia so easily. So there's been this whole sort of military philosophy of, you know, our own country is pretty indefensible in terms of geological sort of features that you can Mm. exploit. So, you know, attack as a form of defense is just the way to go if you want to secure your homeland. Mm. I'm concerned that we're, we're sort of ending up with a kind of geographic determinism here, where well, it, if you yeah. if you end up the, the bit of earth that you're on is a bit shit, then you're kind of done for, and then you can excuse your behaviour. But isn't that the whole of human history? I mean, that's mm. what happens. But yeah, it's a okay. it's a war for resources, isn't it? I mean, this is why with climate change and water shortages coming up, we are going to have migrations yeah. and we're going to have wars. Mm. So, so yeah, and you know, it's the same. Th- and, and that's the end of the episode. <laughs> Apple cores, freshly picked from the garbage of the rich. Apple cores, apple cores. Rats, rats, nice dead rats for sale. Perfect for rat stew, rat soup, rat pie, and the ever popular ratatouille. Nothing. Nothing. I got absolutely nothing for sale. Worth pointing out to regular listeners here that normally when I lead episodes, uh, there's quite a lot of stuff where I just keep saying to Brooksy, ah, ah, actually, I just want to add this thing and this thing and this thing. And when Michael leads... Um, it tends to be very much it's just quite cursory. It just sort of you know, races through and gets it done. I don't think cursory and, and is on the this, word. Informed, just smooth. Okay. Yeah, fine. Informed and smooth. <laughs> we'll go with. Uh, but on this occasion, he keeps interrupting, being like, "Oh no, I've got to add this one more thing, <laughs> one more thing," because uh, he's he, he's excited. It's, it's yeah. Bless him. Oh. Uh, what what are you adding? What so, do you want to add I, I just wanted to say that uh, this isn't just like a historical thing. You know, we we talk about thousands and thousands of years ago, but actually, you know, the the, the geography geology issue is ongoing now. So you've got like the Tibetan Plateau, for instance. Mm-hmm. You're talking about access to water, yeah. and China are at the moment talking about using cloud seeding to get the the rainfall that would fall on Tibet to fall, you know, in other parts of China. So I told you about when I went cloud seeding yes, in Mali. Yes, you have. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, so Tibet is the highest and largest plateau in, in the world. In 2008, I just went up in this little, <laughs> tiny little plane and, uh, yeah, just some cloud seeding. It was good. Carry on. Finished? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, so it's got all these tens of thousands of glaciers. It's got loads of water. And all that like water... Five minutes after we landed, it started raining, and I, I took the credit. I, I think, <laughs> unscientifically. <laughs> but on. not uncharacteristically. No, certainly not, no. <laughs> so, um, anyway, so I just wanted to make the point that, you know, China is sort of vying for all Tibet's water. So the fact that um, it doesn't want to give freedom to, to Tibet is not just to do with some kind of political concerns. You know, mm. it's it's got resources and yeah. water is They're the thirsty. big resource. Yeah, <laughs> and they're massively thirsty. And so you know, it's basically the water tower for the entire continental region there. So going, you know, all the way down into India as well, mm. the Indian subcontinent. And so you you have to control that kind of water. But that water is, is a geological thing. You know, mm. you, it, it absolutely controls where you can have populations living. But presumably now with anthropogenic climate change, humans are changing the earth and its climate, which then in turn is shaping how civilization pans out. So the snake is kind of eating its own tail. Yeah, and, and so we've done things like use um, 
I mean, we talked about the trade winds and, and moving ships around, and the, the colonization of America by Europeans, for instance, has changed the climate. Really? Yeah. So, so uh, what happened was the Europeans went over to America late 15th century, 1492, mm-hmm. killed just a massive number of people. Mm-hmm. So, so the, 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 the research that's just come out of UCL basically says that there was something like 60 million people living in the Americas, end of the 15th century. Mm-hmm. Within 100 years, that had dropped to 5 million Oh my God. So 55 million. 55 million, by the way, is 9% of the world's population at that time. Mm. Just been wiped out, decimated by these European uh, settlers. And uh, what happened was all of the land that had been cultivated by all those people was no longer being cultivated and just gone wild again. So as it went wild and just grew madly, it absorbed loads and loads of carbon dioxide. So all these plants just pulled carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And uh, it went down by 7 to 10 parts per million over that 100 years. So at the moment, we're increasing CO2 levels by about 3 parts okay. per million a year. So it, they, they dropped it down. Effects. And we're so seeing they... warming. So they dropped it down. And, uh, and that has been linked to the, the Little Ice Age. So, wow. so when you um, look at uh, the bubbles in ice cores... And which you can also, I do. Which you do, obviously. And you can see it in the charcoal and pollen deposits as well this time, that actually that kind of level of reforestation, just everything going back to the wild, pulled enough carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere to actually change the climate. So they're calling it genocide-generated climate change. <laughs> just when you think climate change... Couldn't get any worse. <laughs> I mean, as PR goes, it's not great, is it? <laughs> Genocide-driven climate change. Fuck me. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so let's do a rundown then. How much does geography dictate history? I mean, loads. Loads, absolutely loads. Like in, more than you would think. In really surprising and interesting ways. And thank you for doing all the research, Lewis Darnold. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Honestly, buy the book, it's worth it. Uh-oh. We had better kiss soon. Why? We're coming to the end. See? Oh, my darling. Now then, we have reached the end of another knockout season of Science-ish, uh, which I think you'd agree has been, well, it's been ideal, hasn't it, Brooksy? It's been perfect. I've had a great time. Favourite episode? Oh. Oh, it wasn't Inside Out. No, no, I quite liked it. I'm going to say, right, uh, right. potentially, for me, Deadpool. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, that that was good. There must be one that I led that was better, though. I don't think there was. I was really racking my brains. And actually, when I did the order in, in my head, your ones were all at the bottom. I can't oh. believe that you would think like that. Yeah, but I do, though. <sighs> and you would know why if you'd paid more attention in the Inside Out episode. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, do obviously you know don't don't panic too much though. Uh, we will be back with a brand new season of, and I can say this: I was thinking if we were a BBC show, we would have sort of um, you know viewer, listener trust issues about you know the way that we describe the show. But we can say whatever we like with absolute liberty. Um, so we will be back with another season of the devastatingly compelling science ish. Oh, can you not say that about Impossible then? No, wouldn't be allowed to. They'd be like, it isn't, is it? (laughs) (laughs) Science-ish is a Radio Wolfgang production presented by me, Rick Edwards, and Dr. Michael Brooks. The producers were Cormac McAuliffe and Eli Block. Sound designed by Eli Block. 
special thanks to Professor Lewis Dartnell. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate wherever you listen to your podcast. Thank you, it does help. You can also find us on Twitter at science underscore ish. I mean, to be fair, worth saying that the Chinese are, I mean, they've, they've caught up slash have overtaken us now. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Copying, though. Making up for lost time. Not innovating. Mm, I think they're doing some innovation behind closed doors, <laughs> as discussed on many previous episodes. <laughs> uh, so, Hopefully I'll be back from China by the time this goes out. Oh, yeah, you're going, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. You're going on a, it's a holiday, isn't it? No, it's not. I, I have an invitation from, from the British Council now. Oh, hang on, what are you doing? I'm just doing some talks and panels about literature and my book and stuff. Panels about literature? Yes. <laughs> Do they know who they've booked? <laughs> Is there another Michael Brooks? Science writing. <laughs> okay, fine. I'm in, you know, I'm in Time Out Shanghai this month. Oh, wow, see? That is... Oh, that might be the best ever. What can I say? Time Out Shanghai. I mean, you know, I have a life outside of this little collaboration we do. Ooh. Time out Shanghai.